0: Well, good morning. Uh, great to see you. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. This is—I'm uh, excited to be here this morning. This is um, this Sunday is the first Sunday in Lent, and um, depending on um, kind of your background, uh, that word may mean nothing to you, or it might be. Well, this is the time of year when I'm supposed to feel guilty, or, um, but Lent is historically this season of preparation for Easter. And um, it's the, I think, what, six Sundays, six Sundays before Easter? So Easter is six weeks away, and we are starting this new series called The Beautiful Sacrifice this morning that is going to help us uh, prepare to celebrate the resurrection on Easter. So if you would turn with me. in in your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible near you on the floor. Uh, Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And uh, if you're looking at one of those blue church Bibles, you can find Mark 10 on page 846. (coughs) And let me invite you to stand with me this morning. We are going to read uh, Mark 10, starting at verse 17. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Oh God, would you speak to us? God, we need to hear your voice. We need to know you as you truly are. Would you make known uh, yourself to us by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> Over the last week or two, I've been listening to this podcast called Dirty John. I know that sounds like an inappropriate thing, but I'm telling you all freely. This is uh, not an inappropriate. Uh, it's you know, it's it's a it's a true crime story. Um, so it's graphic, but not in the way you might think <laughs> based on the name. Uh, it's the it's a story of a a true crime that took place in the Newport Beach, Irvine area about two or three years ago. And it's the story of this woman named Deborah and a uh, man named John who um, she met on an internet dating site. Uh, Deborah was a successful uh, businesswoman. She was, um, I think we would say, very wealthy. And John claimed to be an anesthesiologist And he wore his blue scrubs everywhere that he went. Um, But nobody could quite figure out why John, the anesthesiologist, didn't have any money. Nobody could figure out what he did with his time when he was supposed to be at work, but he had no apparent place to go to work. And so Deborah and John started dating, and very quickly uh, things began to just feel off. And Deborah's grown children, adult children, um, said something about this guy just uh, doesn't seem right. And John responded to that by sort of trying to cut Deborah's children out of her life. And yet, despite that, Deborah was so charmed by this man that uh, things moved very quickly, and within a couple of months, they were married and they had bought a new house and moved in together. Um, Deborah's kids eventually hire a private investigator. And they start digging into John's past and they discovered that John had served time in prison. He was convicted for stalking and being a felon in possession of a firearm. And very quickly the pieces start coming together and these, um, you know, Deborah's children begin to realize that their mom has married a con artist. A man who is uh, very charming and very persuasively meets uh, wealthy women and uh, persuades them to empty their bank account into his. He's done it in the past, and now they can tell he's trying to do it again. And despite all of the evidence and this kind of mounting that, you know, this is not like a great mystery, what's going on here, uh, John is so effective in persuading Deborah that she continues to stand by him. Deborah remains committed to John. He's so charming that he's able to explain away every detail that uh, the private investigator digs up about her uh, about his past he's so charming that he convinces her that in spite despite evidence to the contrary that he actually does love her that he's actually committed to her well I'm not going to spoil the ending for you but essentially it's a story about the choice that this woman has to make the choice between seeing this man as he really is and as she wants him to be And I'm telling you this story this morning because that is really the choice that we all have to make too. This morning we're starting this new series called The Beautiful Sacrifice and it's a story about preparing or it's a a series about preparing to celebrate Easter. And as we look at the God who has revealed himself to us in scripture, we all have a choice. And the dilemma is this, you have the choice to believe in the God that you want to believe in. The God that you expect to exist on the one hand, and on the other hand, the God that actually is. That's the choice before us. Martin Luther is a uh, name we probably have all uh, heard. Martin Luther was a, a priest, a pastor. He lived 500 years ago, and Martin Luther was sort of the impetus to the, the Protestant Reformation, which really rocked and, uh, and changed the course of, of Western civilization 500 years ago. And Martin Luther's intention was to call Christians and to call the church at large to just open our eyes and look at the God who actually is. Martin Luther was convinced that the church had begun to follow not the God who has made himself known to us, but the God that we would just expect, kind of a God of common sense. And Martin Luther began to, uh, was convinced that that God, the God that we expect, doesn't actually exist. And Martin Luther's fundamental insight was this. We um, We should not speculate about who God is or how he acts. We should not say, well, it would seem to me that God would do such and such. Martin Luther's insight was we can only come to know God as he has revealed himself to be. We can only come to know God as he has revealed himself. And uh, Martin Luther kind of highlighted this distinction by talking about two different approaches to God. He talked about the way of glory and the way of the cross. And he said that this first approach, the way of glory, uh, this is the approach of every religion. Uh, This is the religious approach to God. The way of glory is the approach um, that says, um, the way of glory says that what God is like is exactly what we would expect him to be like. He's the God of our common sense. Um, The way of glory says that God is basically like us. He's just bigger and more powerful than we are. And so the way of glory says God only likes those who, uh, God only loves people who love him. And God only blesses people who live up to his standards. God only associates with people that make him look good. And so if you want to know God, you better better get to work. And if you get to work, and if you please God, then he will bless your dreams. That's the way of glory. And on the other hand, Martin Luther said, is the way of the cross. And Luther insisted that We cannot talk about what God is like on the basis of what we would expect him to be like. But we only know what he's like because he's made himself known to us. And so we have to begin by asking the question, how has God revealed himself? And God has revealed himself most clearly and completely in the person of Jesus. And so the way of the cross says that we know God because God gave himself up and became one of us. And that's the story that we remember at Christmas, that in the incarnation, uh, God himself emptied himself of riches and became a human being and took on our flesh. And then as we approach Easter, the way of the cross says we only celebrate the resurrection because the crucifixion happened. And so we know God as he has suffered on our behalf, as he has hung on the cross in our place, God has made himself known to us in Jesus, and so if we're going to follow God, we must follow him in the way of the cross. And so the choices are, is will we believe in the God we expect to exist, or will we follow the God who actually is? Because the implications of this are, are earth-shattering. These, the way of the cross and the way of glory are two polar opposite approaches to God. One is a, one is an approach to God, the God who actually exists, and the other is an approach to a God who is just a figment of our imagination. And let me just give you a quick example of how different these approaches to God are. Think about, um, the, just think for a minute with me about the word power. Um, the way of glory says that God's power, divine power, is kind of like our power. It's just bigger and more powerful. And so the way of glory says that, well, God uses his power like we would if we were just more powerful, So God uses his power to oppose those that oppose him, to crush his enemies. But the way, of glo- the way of the cross looks at power in a totally different way. The way of the cross means that we have to understand God's power in light of the cross. And we see then that God's power is used in exactly the opposite of the way we would expect it to be used. God's power is revealed in the weakness of the cross. Because it's in the cross as Jesus, uh, as God is apparently defeated that at the hands of evil powers that God is actually emptying death and sin of its, of its power. It's as Jesus suffers and submits himself to death that life is actually gained. It's in the cross that all the powers of evil are finally put to death. And so the beautiful sacrifice is a series about Jesus and what it means to follow him. The beautiful sacrifice is is ultimately about Jesus because Jesus is the beautiful sacrifice. And he's not beautiful despite his sacrifice, but rather it's in his sacrifice that we see his beauty. And so as we move towards Easter, what I'm going to ask you is this, will you follow the God who actually exists or will you follow the God who you expect to exist? Will we follow Jesus in the way of the cross? Or will we follow ourselves and just hope that God would show up and bless our dreams and our efforts? Because what we're going to see over and over again is that the God who actually exists does not behave the way we would expect him to be. And so we are going to look in this series at... um, The way that Jesus, as the king, goes to the cross and not to a throne. And we're going to look in this series at, uh, we're going to look at the question of what it's like to know the presence of God. And we're going to look at the question of what do we do when when we're seeking to kind of live the dream and yet nothing seems to be going our way. What do we do then? And we're going to look at the question of what is it like to know the presence of God and how do we experience the presence of God even when he feels distant from us. And we're going to look at the question of where joy comes from. And next week we're going to ask the question of what do we do when life isn't going well. And we're going to see over and over again that there's this clear choice between us. The choice to follow the way of glory or the way of the cross. To follow the God of our imagination or the God who actually is and so this morning I want to briefly tell you the story of this man this rich young ruler that we read about just a minute ago as he as we see in his interaction with Jesus uh, as we learn about the way of the cross and so Mark tells us that um, mark tells us that Jesus was getting ready to leave on a journey and as he's about to leave it's about to you know, head out of town, this man runs up to him and kind of breathlessly, eagerly throws himself at Jesus' feet. And uh, the, the gospels as a whole tell us that this man we, we call him the rich young ruler. And um, what does that mean? It means this guy had it all. You know He was rich. You understand these words, right? He was young. He was a ruler. <laughs> um, he was tall, dark and handsome.) <clears throat> He was, um, he had it all going on. Excuse me. But he runs up to Jesus and he's out of breath and he asks Jesus this question. And the question is Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear that question, how can I get eternal life? We think we know what he's asking because um, what we mean when we talk about eternal life is at some point in the future, I'm going to die. And then, will I go to heaven when I die? But that's not what the rich young ruler is asking Jesus, because every good religious person believes that they're going to heaven when they die. And as we're going to see in a second, this guy thought he was doing it all right. And so when this man, young rich young ruler, comes and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not saying, um, hey Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven after I die? Uh, I mean think about what, what this is saying This guy, is, he has it all People do what he says He has no shortage of resources He's accomplished all of this And he's still young But he's saying, but I'm not really living How can I experience the life that is eternal? How can I experience life that is really life? And when we see that, and that's what he's really asking, I think we see that we are actually very much like the rich young ruler. Because globally speaking, um, I mean, those of us who are in this room today, I mean, let's just be honest, like if you got here today, that we are in the top 1% of people who have ever walked the face of the earth, right? I mean, if you live in South Orange County and you are homeless under a bridge, you have better access to healthcare, your children have better access to education than most people who have ever lived, right? And most of us aren't living under a bridge. Those of us who live in South Orange County in 20, what is it, 2018? We are in the top 1% of the world's population in terms of financial resources, access to education, health care, access to food and leisure. And yet most of us have experienced some measure of what the rich young ruler has, where we're saying, gosh, we have it all. And yet it seems like we're not actually experiencing life like as it could be. I feel like I talk to people all the time who who say what amounts to I'm like 6 months away from really being happy. You know, once I get once my job gets to this next level, once the business takes off, once I get that promotion, once we finish the remodel, once we this vacation we just booked is going to be awesome. That's what life is really going to be like, right? The, oh yes, it's going to be great. And yet those moments come and they go and we never turn around and say, yes, like that was the moment, now I'm really living. Nope, I've never met anybody who said that. And the problem that we experience is that we never get to the end of just a little bit more. And so we think that a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more is the solution, but what if a little bit more is actually the problem? Because what happens when there's always a little bit more and we never get to the end of our rope is that we never experience that a little bit more is is not the solution. And life doesn't come from just a little bit more. A little bit more is not the solution, it's the problem. In her book, The Price of Privilege, psychologist Madeline Levine writes about the fact that children growing up in affluent, loving homes are experiencing an epidemic in terms of the rate of depression, substance abuse, and anxiety disorders. Teenagers growing up in affluent homes are at a higher risk for those behaviors than children raised in the lowest socioeconomic brackets in our country. And they're experiencing these behaviors not despite the fact that they grow up with privilege and comfort, but actually because of it. So the question is why are teenagers, like the rich young ruler and like the kids growing up in our homes, struggling to understand what it means to really live? Because that's the question that this man asked Jesus. Now Jesus' um, response basically is, well, if you're just perfect, then everything will go well for you. And um, you can imagine Jesus kind of intending to, like, stop this guy in his tracks, and it doesn't work. And again, this is what we, I'm a really, I'm a good person, right? I mean, come on. Um, And Jesus, you know, Jesus says, just keep the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And how does the rich young ruler respond? Nailed it. You know, every single one of them, I've been doing them consistently. Like, how stupid can you be? <laughs> and yet Jesus uh, shockingly doesn't go, come on, dude. He, um, Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with something profound. It says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And I think it's important to pause and acknowledge that that's what it says because what Jesus is about to say probably did not feel like love to this man and probably doesn't feel a lot like love to us. And so Mark reminds us that Jesus loves this man and that Jesus loves you. The Bible tells us over and over again that the reason that Jesus came was to give us life. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly just later in Mark 10, Jesus says that, um, he says, I came to give my life as a ransom. I came to give my life away. Why? So that I could buy you life that's really life. I came for you to have life. Jesus came and looks us in the eye and tells us what we need to give up because he loves us. Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. And so he pointed out the thing that stands between this man and really living he pointed out the thing that stands between this man and his God. Um, a couple, several years ago, when I was in high school, I went um, for a week to summer camp. And um, we, we got to summer camp, and it's, you know, the girls are up there, and the boys are down there, and we go down, and we find our cabin, and we open the door to our cabin, and it just reeks. Um, it smelled so bad. And, it, you know, first you think, well, it's like high school boys of course the cabin smells but I'm pretty sure there was like a a rat had died in the attic and was just I mean it was nasty and we go in there and your first thought is how are we going to survive a week in this place but after a little while you get used to it and like by the end of the Thursday or Friday people would come into our cabin they're like guys it smells awful in here and we're like yeah we don't really even smell it anymore (laughs) And what Jesus is saying is that our attitude towards our possessions and our money and our stuff is like that rat decomposing in our attic and we don't even smell it anymore because we can all point to somebody who makes what we make with, you know, two more zeros at the end, right? And we become desensitized to the power that our stuff has over us. And so Jesus looks at this man who has everything going for him and yet is not happy. And he loves him and he asks him to give away everything he has. Okay, so let me just be clear and say this. It is not a sin to be rich, and God does not want you to be poor, okay? Like, because I know somebody's like, yeah, I get it. okay, I get it, right? It's not a sin to be rich, and God doesn't want you to be poor and um, god god advocates more on behalf of the poor than anybody god does not want you to be poor and i fully believe that if the rich young ruler had responded differently than he does here and he had started selling off his possessions jesus might have come to him at some point and said hey okay i mean i okay okay you made the point like you don't have to get rid of everything because getting rid of everything is not the point point." But Jesus looks at this man and loves him and says, as long as your stuff remains between you and God, you'll never experience real life. I have a friend who gave his wife a dumpster for Christmas. Some of you may know this person. And I remember when he told me this, I thought, wow, that's uh, that's romantic. Nice job, dude. (laughs) Why would you get your wife a dumpster for Christmas? Well, because I guess at some point the stuff is like cluttering out space for the life. And there comes this point of saying we've just got to purge if we're going to actually live. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now I know somebody's thinking, well, hey, I don't have a problem with money. That's not my issue. I don't think Jesus would want me to give everything away that I have. And you may be right. It's completely possible that money is not... Um, your problem, but if we're going to grant that can we also grant that like maybe actually money is the problem <laughs> um, You may be right that money's not your problem But maybe it actually is and if you really I mean if you really want to know do you have a problem with money? all you would have to do is like elbow the person next to you not your spouse and say hey take a look at my records Take a look at how I've spent my money over the last couple of months and tell me what you see. Tell me, do you think I'm a, a generous, do you think I'm making wise financial? I mean, right? Like, open up your financial records to somebody. And if the idea of that makes you want to vomit, <laughs> then maybe, like, money is the thing that's actually growing around your heart. Um... This is not money per se. The issue here is that there is something for each of us that stands between us and our God. So here's what I want you to do. Um, when you came in, you got this journal that says the beautiful <coughs> sacrifice on it. And uh, what, what we want to help you do in this sermon series as we approach Easter is we want to just give you some practical ways to reflect on the scripture. And so every week, I'm going to try to give you one or two really practical, concrete questions to write down and then to take them home and think about them over the week. And so here's what I want you to do. Take, out, take this out, do it right now, and grab a pen. There's a pan on the floor near you. And um, here's the question I want you to write down today. If Jesus were to look at you and love you, what would he ask you to give away? Okay, write it down because nobody's going to go home and be like, yeah, I really feel like... What's that question again? (laughs) Okay, if Jesus were to look at you and love you, what would he ask you to give away? And then the follow-up question is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And let me just be clear, I'm not... I'm not actually right now asking you to go and give that away. I mean, maybe you want to do that, but I'm I'm asking you to just ponder the question. What is it that stands between you and your God? What would Jesus ask you to give away? And what are you afraid of? Because this passage presents us with a clear choice between following the God that we expect to find following the God that actually exists. And the God that we expect to find is the God who would say something like, if you just obey all of the rules, then I will bless you. Sometime long, long in the future, you will get what you've always wanted. That's what every religion teaches, and that... um, that God might even look at you and require you to give away everything you own, But the way the cross reveals to us the God who really is, the God who actually exists, the way the cross shows us that happiness is found not in having everything I want, but in actually wanting the things that I already have. The rich young ruler, it says, he went away sorrowful. But you know, there's, Another rich young ruler in this passage. It's Jesus himself, right? Was Jesus rich? Jesus is God. Jesus possessed the wealth of heaven, and yet he gave up his riches to come to earth. Jesus is a young man. Jesus is a ruler. And yet he did not use all that he had to indulge himself, rather, he left it all behind. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is moving towards the cross, it says that Jesus was deeply grieved, or he was sorrowful. It's the same word that's used to describe the rich young ruler as he goes away, holding on to his stuff, but without life. He is grieved, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus approaches the cross, he is grieved. He is deeply sorrowful. So the question is, why? Why is Jesus grieved? in the garden of gethsemane as jesus approaches the cross he knows that he is that something is about to come between him and his god and that is exactly the same reason um, that the rich young ruler is grieved as well right something has has become between him and his god the rich young ruler's god is not god it's his stuff And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knows that he is about to lose the presence of God for the first time in history. And he is deeply grieved. The rich young ruler thinks his possessions will bring him life, and God is there to make him happy, but he's drowning in his stuff and he goes away sad. That's one response to what Jesus is calling us to here, to follow him in the way of the cross. But amazingly, there's another response to Jesus in this passage. And um, uh, Peter is listening to this whole thing. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, you know that Peter is the guy who always kind of brashly says the loud mouth, like, put your foot in your mouth, kind of stupid thing. Like, why did you, Peter, that was embarrassing. And look at what Peter says here. He looks at Jesus. Jesus is talking about this thing. And Jesus says, you know, give away all that you have and give it to the poor. And Peter's like, hey, we actually did that one, Jesus. We've left everything to follow you. We did that. And Jesus responds with what is got to be one of the sweetest promises in the Bible. He says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, mothers, sisters, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now we read that and think, gosh, I wonder what Jesus might mean by that. This is one of those places where, like, he's saying exactly what he means. Jesus is saying, if you leave. Your, whatever sacrifice you make in order to follow me, you will receive a hundredfold, but it will not be easy. And in the age to come, it, then it will be easy. It will be hard, and yet you will never regret it. Both of those things are true. Any sacrifice you make to follow Jesus... God will repay you. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, We have no idea what literally the the form of, you know, that that, uh, repaying a hundredfold will look like. It will be hard, and yet uh, we know, we can trust, that God loves his children. Jesus is telling us that our Father is not stingy. He loves his children. He spoils his kids. He will not turn his back on you. He will repay you a hundredfold. And yet it will be hard. And both of those things are true. And yet you will never turn back and say, I really regret what I gave up. I, um, I hesitate to say this, um, but I feel like I have to. Um, I have to say that I have experienced enough of this to know that this is true. And, um, and there's so many stories that I could tell you about this. But two and a half years ago, on a Sunday morning, our family left probably the best house that we're ever going to own and locked the door for the last time. And we went to church with friends that we loved. And then we said goodbye, and we got in our minivan, and we drove away from a city that we loved to come here to start a new church. And I remember pulling out of town and Ashley and I sitting in the front seat and looking at ourselves, each other and saying we are driving away from a wonderful life and we are going to miss this deeply and yet there's not the tiniest part of me that thinks we're about to do the wrong thing right here and you know over the last two and a half years I cannot tell you how hard it has been And yet, there's still not an ounce in me that would say, I regret that decision. I haven't done this perfectly at all. Far from it. And I think if I'm honest, I would have to write in my journal an answer to that question that the thing Jesus might ask me to give up is the illusion that I would be happier if our church was growing faster. Not that i They'll wanted to grow fat not that that's a wrong thing to want but the illusion that i would be happier if that was happening i can't tell you that i've followed jesus in the way of the cross not even close to perfectly but i've experienced enough of it to know that jesus is right and to have tasted the the promise that nothing you sacrifice to follow jesus um, you'll ever regret and I've experienced that enough of you to stand uh, enough of that to stand here and say, Jesus really is beautiful. And he really is worth it. And this isn't some like jujitsu trick to try to be more generous or something. I'll also say this, I have like preemptively regretted almost everything I've ever sacrificed. <laughs> you know, like before I give it away, I oh man, I don't want that. I've never retroactively regretted anything I've sacrificed for Jesus. And I want you to give up on the way of glory because it's a lie. I want you to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. It's an upside-down way to live, and that's why Jesus finishes this section of the Bible by saying, the first will be last, and the last will be first. The way of the cross means looking to God and seeing him as he truly is following him in his sacrifice because real life only comes on the other side of the cross. Following Jesus will demand more of you than you ever thought, and yet the reward will be far greater than you ever imagined. Somebody once asked Walt Disney, when did you know that your theme park was going to make it? You know, we think of the Disney company as this global brand that's just you know, but it was a risk to start Disneyland and Anaheim and significant investment with no, nobody would ever done anything like that before. And so somebody asked Walt Disney, how, when did you know that your park was going to make it? And um, he said, I can tell you, uh, not just that, you know, uh, when I thought it might work. He said, I could tell you the day I could tell you the the week, I could tell you the minute that I knew that it was going to work. He said, I used to get up early in the morning and walk the park. And he said, the moment I knew we were going to make it was when I came around a corner and I saw Cinderella leaning down to pick up a cigarette butt and throw it in the trash. And he said, I knew that if I could get the princess, to lower herself, to pick up trash, then our team was all in and we would be successful. So what could ever get us to go all in? What would ever convince us that Jesus is actually right when he says there is something between you and your God and until you give it up, you will never know Real life, but if you give it up, you will be repaid a hundredfold with persecution and in the age to come. Only this when you see the Prince of Glory hanging on the cross, when you see his sacrifice on your behalf, willpower will never do it. Like this might make us generous for a week or two. But willpower will never last. It's only the cross of Christ. When we look at the true rich young ruler, emptying himself of all that he is, to hang on the cross, in order to give us true life, will our hearts be melted, and we will respond by giving up what we think will bring us life and follow Jesus in the way of the cross. And when we do that, then we will discover that the good life actually lies on the other side of the cross. And that's where Jesus is leading us. We pray with me? Father, thank you for these stark and stunning words. And God, I pray that uh, as much as we might want to minimize the, uh, the force of Jesus' words here, and say, well, he doesn't really mean what he says. God, I pray that you would impress them much more upon us. Not because doing so um, would be a way to kind of beat ourselves up so that you might look more kindly upon us, God, but because there truly is something that stinks and we've grown used to it. Our senses have been dulled we really think that just a little bit more would make us happy. And yet, God, you are offering us life, real life, now. Yes, it'll be hard, but nothing, nothing that is good ever comes without difficulty. God, I pray that you would help us as a church. uh, Give us the faith to see Jesus as he really is. So that we might just take the first step in walking away from that which we have put between you and ourselves. If you would do that and help us follow Jesus, our beautiful sacrifice, we would thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.